we don't have time in Sunday school to show them to the kids or the technology in that room, but I also thought they would be a blessing and a benefit to um, parents as well as grandparents or great-grandparents to see what this book is teaching through and showing the overwhelming narrative of Scripture that the entirety of Scripture points us to Christ Jesus. This morning we will be returning to the Gospel of Luke after our period of time in the Psalms for this summer. And today we'll be picking up in Luke 24, excuse me, Luke 22, verses 24 through 38, um, which is picking up right where we left off immediately after the institution of the Lord's Supper. Let's read the text for this morning. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak to buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you that we are gathered here this morning in this church to hear from your word. And I pray that we would be encouraged and blessed and led to maturity by your scriptures, by the words of Jesus spoken to his disciples, and we would seek to apply them, that we would seek to find caution in them, that we would seek to be encouraged in them. And they would lead us all the days of our lives. We thank you that you've given us your son, Jesus, who has offered a perfect sacrifice for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of you follow sports? Okay, a couple. I don't follow them much either. But a little bit. Just baseball. But in recent years, in sports conversations, there's been discussion of something or of someone who is the GOAT, or greatest of all time. It's an acronym. And it's it comes up in various different sports that you'll see. There's a debate in various different sports as well. 
And it's one of those topics that for some sports is seemingly settled. For other sports, it's extremely debated and controversial. You've likely heard to some degree some of it, even if you don't follow sports. For example, in the world of football, this is generally considered to be the case for Tom Brady, um, as he's won seven Super Bowls, was MVP five times, and so for Patriots fans and Buccaneers fans, this is generally accepted. Though for others, not so much. For those who follow football may, you know, violently <laughs> dispute this, even though he has the record for most Super Bowl wins. With baseball, it's a little more unanimous. Generally speaking, people would say, Babe Ruth, that's it. But there's a guy out there in Anaheim named Shohei Otani who seems to be getting really close on that one, as more so if the Angels, you know, let him go so he can go to a team that might actually win. But it's basketball where it gets really interesting. Because in basketball, there's a bit of a debate. Is it Michael Jordan? Is it Kobe Bryant? Is it LeBron James? I mean, it's obviously Michael Jordan. Six championships in eight years, and one of those years he didn't play, another one he played half the season. Now, I might be biased, of course, because I grew up outside Chicago, but that's neither here nor there. Yet, even so, it's a pretty hotly debated conversation, because there's lots of people who will say it's LeBron, LeBron James, and I don't see the argument, but that's neither here nor there. But when it comes to this conversation, it's people throwing out all sorts of numbers and stats, and it just seems at some point or another that people just give up. But then it, when someone finally is conceded, though, that it's not LeBron James, that it is Michael Jordan, then someone pops up and says, what about Wilt Chamberlain? What about Larry Bird? What about Magic Johnson? What about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? It goes on and on and on. And some of these people have good arguments. Some of them don't. Some of it just doesn't matter at all. And that's really kind of the point. But imagine if all of these men were to get into one room and all start arguing about which one of them is the greatest at basketball or baseball. I mean, Michael Jordan certainly wasn't the best at baseball, but that's another conversation again altogether. But they're all there. They're pleading their case on whether or not they're the greatest. Does that not sound awful <laughs> and annoying? to be watching that, just to hear men boast about how great they are and puffing themselves up about their accomplishments that ultimately lead to which of them can carry a ball down a court better than the other one. And I've, I, I respect people with athletic ability, but it really doesn't matter. And yet, at the same point, I cannot help but picture when looking at this text, that's likely how Jesus is feeling as he's hearing the disciples have a dispute among themselves about who is the greatest. Because that's the exact debate they're having. In verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which one of them had to be regarded as the greatest. It just seems so silly. But ultimately, there's a whole lot more mercy in Christ than there is in me because my reactions would be much more harsh than what Jesus responds to here. But to recap a little bit, this isn't completely isolated from what has just happened. So all of these events that we're looking at today have happened immediately after the supper. This is what's happened. The Lord's Supper has been instituted. Jesus has told them various different things about the supper. Um, I mean, to, to recap, really, it, they're observing the Passover. During this Passover, 
they've just finished taking of this Last Supper. Jesus has instituted the Last Supper. He's told them that this is the, this, um, this bread is my body, um, broken for you. This um, cup, take it. It is the blood of the new covenant. He's given them these pretty significant and strong pictures connected to this supper. And then the very last thing of this supper, though, is that he tells them that one of them will betray him. Well, so there they see the, who's the worst of the disciples, the one who's going to betray him. But then also in, in this instance, from the Last Supper and even before this, Jesus' face is set toward the cross. And the disciples are here discussing among themselves who is the greatest. As it seems to have been the trend for the gospel, the disciples seem to be a little confused and not quite sure what's going on. And yet this dinner shows us three different events that occur after the Lord's Supper is instituted. So this is before they head off to the Mount of Olives, which is as another gospel shows us as they go out singing a hymn. This is not quite there yet. It is them wrapping up dinner and a, three different conversations come up. And I've got them in alliterating points. So the first of which is the dispute. The second is going to be the denial. And the third would be the declaration. And so this dispute, really, as far as the narrative is driven, it's not a good look for the disciples. Big things are happening around them, and yet they're bickering about who among them is the greatest. And yet immediately before this bickering, as I mentioned, they're given insight to who is the worst. So really, they're just fighting over top 11 which isn't really all that great. But Luke doesn't really tell us about the debate. He simply says there is a debate. In fact, he focuses much more on Jesus' response than he does the nature of the dispute. So we really don't get, you know, the insight of this. We don't get to see if James and John bring the thunder against Peter and Andrew. But rather, what we see is it's there, it's recorded, and then Jesus responds. But the crux of Jesus' response is ultimately that they ought to stop focusing on being the greatest. Jesus doesn't really just tear into them and put them in their place. He does, but it's ultimately that they need to change their focus. So in Jesus' response, he does begin with a pretty hefty statement. He starts by comparing them to the kings of the Gentiles. So let's not rush past that. He's not, they're not going to hear this and immediately think, oh, this is wonderful. Jesus is comparing me to a king. Instead, they're going to go, oh, Jesus just compared us to those unclean Gentiles. So they're going to hear this as a bit of a slight, maybe even an insult, rather than hearing it as a compliment. But further than that, he describes them as what if Gentile kings and leaders do. They lord their authority over their subjects. They are called, and it's interesting, the text says they are called benefactors, but it also could be translated they call themselves benefactors. And so it seems that Jesus is instead saying to them, rather, that they lord their authority over their subjects and then they celebrate themselves for it. Benefactor is this honorary title that they'd given to themselves. The only place that it's used in the, in the New Testament is here. And it's a very little tr literal translation of it would be a worker of good or a doer of good. 
But as I mentioned, it's an honorary title. So they're not being celebrated for what they've done well. It's a title they've given themselves to celebrate how good they think they are. And so they were celebrated as doers of good, but rather these kings and these rulers were authoritarian. They would celebrate themselves as benevolent while pulling rank. So following this example, Jesus tells them, don't be like these rulers. In fact, be better than them. Even though they prop themselves up, even though people celebrate them as being good, the disciples are told, don't be like that. Be better. And yet the manner in which he teaches them to be better, it's one of those instances that's a little controversial, and it demonstrates to us the unlikeliness of the kingdom of God. When we think about our kingdoms and how we'd build them up, they generally aren't headed by servants. But that's what Jesus says here. It's not what you would expect. He tells them to be better rulers, but not by being better rulers, but by being better servants. The youngest, excuse me, the greatest shall become the youngest. The best of you will take the lowliest places. The greatest leader is the one who will serve. And that's what Jesus says in response. He says, but not so with you. Rather, the great, let the greatest among you become the youngest. The leader is the one who serves. But we should be careful that we don't simply reduce this to a principle for success. Jesus isn't just saying, if you serve rather than lead, you're going to succeed. And oftentimes, we boil this down to this. Jesus sim wasn't simply teaching them that if you make yourself lowly, you'll profit. That's that's not the principle to be learned here. But that being said, the remarkable thing about this is there is a model of leadership in the business world that was developed by a man named Robert K. Greenleaf. And he based this upon the words and the actions of Jesus. So this does actually kind of come out into the leadership world, and it's really interesting how it works out. That the business in the business world, it's demonstrated that this servant leadership where the leader seeks to serve those and doesn't domineer over them, this turns into in a company of uh, yielding lower employee turnover, higher employee satisfaction, and higher profits, which all of that's great. And if you really think about it, what they're doing is they're taking this leadership model that Jesus has modeled, and they're seeking to model that themselves, which that really is a great thing, and it ends up leading the company to flourish. Fantastic. But that's not the point of what Jesus is teaching, even though it does make a remarkable statement that when the principles of Jesus and when the attitudes and the life of Jesus is followed, it ends up being for everyone's better. But that's really ancillary to what Jesus is teaching here. Because when you think about the audience of people that Jesus is speaking to, the 11 specifically that remain, so Judas is left, all but one of these men that Jesus is speaking to is going to be martyred. They didn't become leaders of massive um, businesses or, you know, Fortune 500 companies. They didn't become CEOs. They didn't become these significant leaders that we celebrate or would see on the cover of Time magazine. They became significant leaders of the church because they became leaders who were willing to sacrifice their lives for the gospel message. The only one of them that's not martyred is John. He's sent off to an island to, in isolation. 
But then following this, Jesus asks them a question. He asks them in verse 27, Who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? And the, the answer we would all expect would be, well, the one who's being served. The, the one who's greater is the one who's sitting at the table with people bringing them food, bringing them napkins and whatever they need. The one who's getting their face wiped off by somebody else. We'd expect that to be the answer here, would we not? And yet Jesus answers this question. Jesus tells them that it is the one who serves who is the greater. And the subtext of all of this is if we look at the rest of what Jesus says, but I am among you as the one who serves. So the text tells us that Jesus is the one who serves, but behind that is ultimately the assumption that we would all understand is that Jesus is greater than all of them. But yet what does Jesus model for us? Jesus being divine, Jesus being fully God and fully man, and yet Jesus himself models in his incarnation humility. If we look at what Paul says, he explains this well in Philippians 2, in verses 6 through 8. Paul writes, starting in verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, <clears throat> referring to Jesus, of course, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul, in this text, is celebrating Jesus' humility, who though Jesus is God, and Jesus is God incarnate, Jesus did not come to be served, but Jesus came to serve. So while the disciples are there disputing over which one of them is greatest, the one who is quite literally the greatest, the one in whom all things were made, the one who is holding all things together, as Colossians tells us, He's sitting in the very room with them as a servant. And yet they are caught up with which one of them is the greatest. It's a very silly argument. But then Jesus goes a little bit further than that. He doesn't just leave them with be a servant instead of one who is served. He gives them an inheritance of sorts. In 28, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So he again emphasizes himself as a king, but he's a servant king. And it's a key theme for the Gospel of Luke. We've looked at this over and over again since I've been here, that Jesus is regularly emphasizing his role as a king in Luke. And yet he assigns them roles. They will eat and drink at his table. Which is interesting because that's what they just finished doing at the Passover meal. They were eating and drinking with him, but they will await a time when they eat and drink with him at his table again in his kingdom. And remember that Jesus just told them he will not eat of this supper again until all is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. But this statement, it further points us to the wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation, the glorious meal when the church, the bride of Christ, will partake with Christ at his second coming. But yet more than that for the disciples, they're promised 
that they will eat and drink in his table, and they will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the thing is, the disciples are told that they're not to sit in a point where they're telling people, I'm the greatest, that they're celebrating themselves or really pulling rank. Because ultimately, pulling rank doesn't work. You cannot just drop a title. Peter and John weren't walking around saying, I was one of Jesus' disciples. It just wouldn't work. I mean, maybe they did, but they weren't doing it as a, hey, listen to me, I walked with Jesus. They were doing it as a, hey, listen to me, I learned from Jesus. But when I was in retail, I learned really quickly that just dropping your title doesn't work. Even though I was a supervisor, I had an interaction with one of my employees the employee was being difficult. I simply asked her to do something, and she shot me a look and ultimately just said, who do you think you are telling me what to do? To which my response was, well, I am your supervisor. And she proceeds to tell me that I wasn't, that someone else was, that you know this other person was my supervisor, you're over this department, which is a half-truth because that person wasn't there and I was overseeing the store at the time, so she was wrong. But ultimately, there was a better way for me to communicate this than simply, this is my title, I'm your supervisor, do it. Because ultimately, it didn't work. And that's a lot of what Jesus is telling the disciples here. Don't simply say, I'm the greatest, so therefore you should listen to me. I'm the greatest because it doesn't accomplish anything. And yet we still do see the disciples go on to do wonderful things that we are blessed by. But at the same point, imagine if I'm in a leadership meeting with the deacons and with Jim, and we're all trying to do this in some way or another. And, you know, some of the deacons are saying, well, I've been at this church longer, which is true, and we're thankful for that, and thank you for being here, for your long commitment to this church. And, but yet at the same point, if Jim comes back and says, well, I've been a pastor for a long period of time, and I'm here, and I'm an elder, and I'm serving, and it's all against me, who's the young newbie here, you know, ultimately— it would just be silly. Because yes, some of those things are true, but if it was all a matter about trying to get our way because of our tenure or lack thereof or youth or whatever it might be, it really doesn't serve the church or serve anything aside from us trying to put our own agenda because of what we've done. And all, in the midst of that, losing sight of what Christ has done for us. Because later, Peter doesn't get to command the other disciples around because he was part of the inner circle with James and John. John doesn't drop the name the disciple whom Jesus loved in his gospel because it makes him better. He does it in a sense as a way of humility to remove himself from the narrative. And he doesn't do it as a way to force people to do things. But in the same sense, we as disciples of Jesus should not do this. We don't walk and tell people, well, I've been following Jesus for 30 years or for 90 years or whatever might be in between, so you should listen to me. Or I don't get to do this. I don't get to stand here and say, you need to do this just because I'm the pastor. That's foolish. And the deacons or elders don't get to throw around their titles as a way to command people because Jesus modeled a form of leadership where he humbled himself. If anyone had the right to say, do this because I am so-and-so, it would be Jesus. And there are instances in which Jesus does that. And what does he tell us to do? The new commandment he gives us is to love one another. Jesus modeled a form of leadership where he humbled himself, even when he is the person who would be exalted. He's been given the name above all names 
because he first humbled himself. And the second part we get to here is the denial. So it's following this dispute. So they're, they're arguing about who's the greatest, and they've already seen who's the worst. But then immediately following that, Peter's told very quickly, even if you think you are the greatest, something's going to happen that's going to demonstrate you need to be humble. So consider what the reader has seen of Peter. What we've seen, and we go back to Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 20, Peter makes this beautiful confession that Jesus is the Christ of God. Peter is the first of the disciples to plainly exclaim Jesus as the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. And Peter is part of Jesus' inner three of James and John and Peter. And so Peter, to some degree, would likely be viewed as I would imagine when they're thinking about who's the greatest, they're probably looking at Peter and John. Maybe not. That's a bit of speculation on my part. I will admit that. But yet even so, today there's a whole group of Christians who would by default, I would say wrongly, but by default of confessing Peter as the first pope would say that he was the greatest. But then there's another group of errant heretical people who would say that John, who never died and to some degree and is still wandering around in some bizarre thing that they can't make sense of and neither can I, um, they would have to say that since John didn't die, at some point that makes him the greatest. But yet, in the midst of all of this, it becomes significantly less important as the narrative goes on. So John, as he's hearing what Jesus says to him here, in, in my mind... I, I can't not help but think that if I were John, hearing what Jesus says about Peter's denial, I would be thinking, yep, Jesus just said I was the greatest. I, I know John didn't say that. That's not in the text here. But as this plays out, the immediate response following, you should humble yourselves and be servants, the next thing that's said is, Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. So consider the glaring irony here that immediately following the disciples' debate over who is the greatest, Jesus tells Peter that he is going to deny that he even knows him. So Jesus takes the example of one of his disciples and shows how he is in fact not the greatest because of what's going to occur. Luke's account of Jesus telling of Peter's denial is unique as it's it's the only gospel that includes Jesus' statement that Satan demanded to have you and that he might sift you like wheat. Which is somewhat similar, if you think about it, to the opening of the book of Job, where in Job, Satan comes to God and says, has this whole plan for what he's going to do. He says that he's been searching the earth. But the instance that's different with Job is the Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? But here... It's Satan demanding to have Peter. So it's somewhat similar, but it's still almost the exact opposite in the way that's presented by Christ here. But yet, what's Jesus' response? And this is what's quite different than Job also, is that Jesus has told Peter that he has prayed for him. But how has Jesus prayed for him? It's not simply that he wouldn't be tempted or that he wouldn't be sifted, but rather Jesus prays for Peter that his faith may not fail. And then take note of what 
Jesus commands Peter to do after. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. The scriptures tell us that trials produce perseverance. So following this failure of Peter, after he repents, and after he's restored, he is to strengthen his brothers. And in a sad statement from Peter, Peter tells Jesus he's ready to go to prison and to death with Jesus. But what we see in the narrative in the next chapters, that's not true. Jesus tells him that not only will he not follow him to prison, but or to death, but he will deny that he even knows the Lord Jesus. Peter's words really don't age well there. But yet in time, Peter will indeed do those things. Peter is not ready to make the statement that he makes. Peter in time will indeed go to prison for the Lord. We see this in the book of Acts. And then he indeed will be martyred for the Lord Jesus as we have a strong, rich Christian history of that. But he's not there yet. As Jesus says, Peter does indeed deny him before the rooster crows. And yet following all of this, what does Peter do? The Lord forgives and restores Peter, and he uses Peter greatly to strengthen his brothers. As Peter is used by the Lord to build his church, Peter boldly declares the gospel at Pentecost. And what happens? 3,000 were added to the number of the church membership in Jerusalem that day. Peter pens two books of Scripture, one of which we just finished reading throughout our summer th today, that are books that strengthen the brotherhood and have been doing so for centuries. And from Peter, we ought to learn that in your failures and in your repentance, you also have the opportunity to turn and strengthen your brothers. From your trials, learn perseverance that you may not sin again, but also that you might aid others in abstaining from sin and cherishing the Lord Jesus more than you cherish your sin. Learn to love Jesus more than you love your transgressions from your sin and your desire to pursue your own kingdom. Instead, learn from that. Pursue the kingdom of Jesus. Use that to strengthen others in the faith. The final, final part here that I've deemed the declaration, which... I'll be honest, I wanted alliteration. You might find a better way of describing this final part. But there's a lot there. Jesus does declare something, so I'll take it. But maybe I stretched that last point. But yet, calling back to Luke 9, where Jesus sends out his apostles, and he tells them to take nothing with them. And now, instead, something very differently, he tells them to go prepared, to go with a satchel and a wallet and swords. So there's a change in the scope of what he's doing here in chapter 22 versus what he did in chapter 9. They will be sent out further. They'll not be greeted with the same kindness that they were and the same hospitality they were greeted with before. And in the same degree, they won't be coming back to Jesus in this circumstance. And yet, what's most telling in this final part of the statement is that Jesus declares the scripture must be fulfilled in him. And in doing so, as he makes a statement, as he, as he states, for I tell you the scripture must be fulfilled in me, in verse 37, and he was numbered with the transgressors. 
for what is written about me has its fulfillment. He's quoting Isaiah 53 that I read this morning, or read at the beginning of our service. He's reading what's known as one of the servant song, or the suffering servant songs in the Old Testament. There's several of them in the book of Isaiah, but Isaiah 53 is likely the most familiar of them. It's where we read and where I read from this morning, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And that's in verse 5 of Isaiah 53. It's also where we get the idea of Jesus as a man of sorrows. If you're familiar with the hymn, stricken, smitten, and afflicted, that language comes from Isaiah 53. It's an incredibly significant chapter for our Christology and how we understand the sacrifice of Jesus. But Jesus only quotes part of it here. He quotes the very end. He quotes verse 12, which verse 12 reads in its entirety, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. He makes intercession for the transgressors. So merely in his quotation, Jesus is asserting that he will soon be treated as a criminal, which is what happens almost immediately after this. And by default, that means his disciples will soon also be treated as criminals. And yet, when the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament, it's, sel it's seldom ever intended that the writer was simply just borrowing one sentence or one phrase. But in most cases, they're intending that the reader would understand and anticipate the entirety of this text. So although Jesus just simply quotes that one part, take note of what is said immediately after. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Rather, the speaker in the New Testament wants us to, Jesus wants his audience there, and Luke, in recording this, wants us to go back to Isaiah 53 and see what's being said. He was intending for us to understand the context of what he's stating. Yet Luke's intent here is not to say that Isaiah 53 has been fulfilled, nor is it Jesus' intent, because Notice, he says, it has its fulfillment. Jesus is keying us and his disciples into understanding that Isaiah 53 is about to be fulfilled and what's going to unfold soon. Jesus is making this reference and giving an indication of what sort of death he is going to die and what his death is going to accomplish. He was numbered with the transgressors as he was crucified among two thieves. And even as we consider Jesus' trial, they choose... Barabbas, an insurrectionist over himself. He's arrested by night as if he was some sort of dangerous criminal that needed a SWAT team to come and catch him off guard. And yet, on the cross, Jesus bears the sins of the many. Even the sins of one of the transgressors that he was crucified next to. And if they treated Jesus as a criminal, it only goes to follow they will treat his disciples as criminals as well. We see that's what happens. You look to the book of Acts, you see it all, how it all unfolds after that. They're thrown in and out of prisons, and they're before kings, and they're declaring the gospel. And yet we as disciples, when we're opposed by others, we ought to learn from this text and from the rest of this text 
to have boldness in Christ when we face opposition. We may not be treated as criminals. We may not be arrested because we are still delighted to have a freedom of religion where we live. But we can still take hope in what Christ has done. We can still take hope in the testimonies and the boldness of his disciples. And be reminded to not act like Peter. When opposed by others, do not deny Christ, but instead look to him to give you boldness and confidence that he may give you words to speak about the glorious hope that lies in you, that you might boldly declare Christ Jesus who bore the sin of many and makes intercessions for the transgressors. If you look to John 17 as Jesus in his high priestly prayer makes intercession for believers of all time. Yet as a disciple of Jesus, live humbly, seeking to serve others, not to be served. When you fail and when you sin, when you fall, look to Christ for forgiveness and be strengthened. By the example of Peter, who though he denied Christ, he was shown great mercy. And Peter dedicated the rest of his life to serving the church. And what a wonderful gospel we have where the greatest of disciples, seemingly so, can deny the Lord Jesus three times, and yet he has shown immense mercy. He is restored, and he's given the task of feeding the Lord's sheep. And he immensely blesses the church. And we can look to a Savior who took on flesh and was not concerned with being the goat, but rather was sacrificed as the Lamb of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your Son who, who humbled himself to provide a way back to you, to provide